1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jane Richards and today I have the pleasure of interviewing Daisy Chong and Michael Dung. They are the editors of Advanced Directives Across Asia, a comparative socio-legal analysis and that was published by Cambridge University Press earlier this year, that's 2023. Daisy is an assistant professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Hong Kong. And Michael Dunn is an associate professor at the Yon Lu Lin School of Medicine in the National University of Singapore. Daisy and Michael, welcome to the show. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Now, just to get us started, I wonder if you can tell me both a little bit about yourselves and how you came to pull together this brilliant book, Advanced Directives Across Asia, A Comparative Socio-Legal Analysis.
0: Uh, So thank you, Jane, for the introduction. Um, In addition to being an associate professor of law, I also uh, work at the Center for Medical Ethics and Law here at Hong Kong U, which gives me the um, opportunity to work on a range of different uh, topics uh, relating to medical ethics and law, um, and specifically uh, on issues such as um, mental capacity, end of life, uh, and so this project actually came out of a funded project on adult guardianship in Asia. So um, when we were, uh, Mikey and I were talking about this, this was an alternative legal mechanism. So not adult guardianship, but as an alternative to uh, adult guardianship that was worthy of study. And so um, Mikey and I discussed the possibility of putting something comparative together and the the conference, uh, which initially we planned to be a big international conference um, became uh, uh, so so it it didn't happen because of the pandemic, but we we did have this um, conference uh, online, and then the book planning began from there.
2: Just, just to add, Jane, thank you also for the invitation to be here. It's great to be uh, to be interviewed on this uh, program. Um, yeah, so as Daisy says, we, we share interest, I guess, in medical ethics and law. I also have that background. Um, a slightly different personal journey, I guess, to the book in that I relocated from the UK to Singapore, and so was increasingly interested and, and becoming aware of the non-Western context around these 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 topics. And I think both Daisy and I were observant that the, you know there had been quite a lot of legal and regulatory change in the UK and in other uh, European and, and and North American as well. Um, and you know we were seeing some traction building in our, the countries we know better in in, in East and Southeast Asia. But we're not clear on on what the kind of Asian picture was. And so I think we saw it as an opportunity to really to really showcase um, some jurisdictions in this part of the world that perhaps don't get the same level of attention and haven't been studied or compared in quite the same way. So that was part of I think the rationale as well for, for looking in, in real comparative depth at the Asian ses- the setting.
1: Yeah, and I think that was one of the unique contributions of the book, the way that you did touch on, a, you know, a really large variety of jurisdictions that don't commonly come into academia, especially in this area of law. You know, the, some of the chapters covered are uh, Israel, Singapore, South Korea, there's Taiwan, Thailand, India. Um, Hong Kong, the Islamic Republic of Iran, Malaysia, the Philippines, and, I mean, the list goes on. It was just fascinating to read these comparisons, um, especially, you know, when we do have this sort of often Eurocentric worldview when we're looking at these sort of topics about advanced directives. So that was, it was fascinating. Now just, you know, I want to turn firstly to the introduction. So you contextualise the book and write that population-ageing which has been described as one of the four global demographic megatrends, is quickly becoming con- a concern for many countries around the world. Now, unsurprisingly, therefore, the development of advanced directives has been the focus of ongoing discussion in marine jurisdictions. Can you provide a bit of context for the listeners in terms of the role of advanced directives in the world's changing demographics?
0: Uh, so uh, I'll, I can um, take this question so essentially um, our the idea here is that um, as aging populations become, more of a trend in more parts of the world, and in particular, um, in um, the jurisdictions, many of the jurisdictions that we've looked at in this book, there will be a corresponding growth in the number of individuals who are living longer. And because they're living longer, they live with uh, chronic health conditions that often uh, accompany advanced age. And so with this change also comes the need to make decisions about the extent to which to which one wishes to con- uh, continue to receive treatment towards the end of life as well as the nature of this kind of treatment and so advanced directives give um, give us a sort of mechanism by which these decisions can be made by the individual in advance while they are still um, capable of making these kinds of decisions.
1: So just to step back can you sort of give a, a, a more detailed sort of definition of what advanced directives are just to sort of provide um sort of context, and perhaps some, talk about some of the origins of advanced directives.
2: Yeah, so let me let me come in on this one, Jane. So, I mean, in many ways, the advanced directive is a, is a Western is a Western conceptualization and, and, and practice uh, in terms of its history, and it's also uniquely linked, I think, to the to the sort of rights in medicine based movement. So, it's, it comes out of a concern with ensuring that patients can exercise their rights including over their own decisions around health care for as long as possible. And in our account, what we, we try to, to, to summarize in, in the introduction, um, it's really the late 1960s and the work of Lewis Kutner, who was a human rights lawyer in America and, and the co-founder of Amnesty, who, who really suggested that, you know, people should be able to indicate to what extent they can consent to treatment when able to do so, when when fully uh, able to express themselves in advance of the onset of an illness. And various proposed solutions were put forward, and various names given to those. I mean, perhaps the most commonly used one uh, in, in across the world really is the living will. So you often hear the living will being used instead of advanced directive, I think, um, but they typically mean the same kinds of things. And then, so this was a, a mechanism by which a patient could maintain their rights and their control over decision-making, even in the onset of the loss of capacity. Um, and, and that was seen as a sort of rights-enhancing or at least rights-respecting way of providing care to people, um, usually as they get older, as, as Daisy said. So, you know, this, this, the, the ageing process creates a sort of price of decision-making. Who who decides? Yeah. And the answer from Kutner and colleagues is the person does, insofar as we're able to draw on a decision that they made previously and, and then extrapolate into the future.
1: Now, that's really interesting because I can imagine that as pers- a person's sort of chronic illness progresses, um, their sort of initial will and preferences or for want of a better sort of expression, their the sort of feeling as to when or how they might want to end their life or the the tolerable conditions for living may change as an illness progresses. What I'm interested to know is what are the sort of challenges to implementing advanced directives, uh, directives rather, both in the sort of application and also as a person sort of um, progresses through a chronic illness?
0: Um, so I, I can um take this question so I think um what what you've mentioned Jane is a very important sort of practical challenge to ad uh, to advanced directives or ads and um, so um, we uh, we we see sort of both um, conceptual and practical challenges to ads, and and so conceptual challenges are sort of like uh, questions where you sort of have to think about the idea of you know this notion of precedent autonomy um, in the sense that you, you're making decisions for your future self, um, and and you know whether the person that's making the ad is the same person as. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the person is when the ad is being implemented and when they've lost capacity and um uh, so so that's a very I think important question which um needs to be grappled with if um, you, you want to use ads and implement ads but sort of um what what we've seen you know in the book and and in various uh, and we've also you know seen in the literature about the, the the Western jurisdictions mostly is that there are a number of practical challenges that can arise. Um, such as you know, just as, as something as simple of as what kind of model or form should be used, and that that covers the question you've raised as well. You know, how do we indicate you know if there are any changes that we want to make to the to the to the AD, or if we're we're kind of sure what we want in the future, but we're not really sure. But what will happen? Um, some you know writers have advocated you know giving education programs to people, for example, about the progression of dementia, so that they know what happens at each stage, um, so that they can plan accordingly. Um, but even So how does the AD capture all of that, you know, and then also big issues about revocation, especially, you know, um, we might come across this later, but in Hong Kong, that's one of the huge issues that the government is very um, concerned with, which is, you know, whether or not people can, you know, revoke their ADs easily. Um, Also, you know, whether people know about ADs and what they are, so this is the awareness issue, um, whether... um, Uh, And this is related to what we talked about, whether people can understand enough about what may potentially happen. So the the stuff uh, we talked about, about dementia, that requires you to have a good understanding of what's going to happen. But, you know, a lot of people who don't have a specified illness may not uh, know what might happen in the future um, or what they can decide in relation to what might happen. Um, Things like whether the AD will be available when it's needed. So, you know, whether this is stored in a central registry, whether it's something that people who are paramedics or frontline uh, personnel have access to, and therefore, you know, they won't give you CPR when they see um, that you're in an emergency um, sort of situation. Um, and whether the doctor treating the individual will implement the AD, even if um, the doctor is aware of it. So sometimes in some jurisdictions, you know, they may be ma- made aware of the AD, but they, because of the, you know, the family who says no, for example, they may feel uncomfortable um, implementing it because of, you know, concerns with liability, concerns with not being sure that's what the patient wants, et cetera. So there's a big, big range of things that could potentially um, go wrong or need to be resolved um, in relation to ADs them.
1: And then sort of going, linking what you just said, Daisy, going back to a point that Michael made and you've referred to as well about ADs stemming from a Western conception of rights in sort of medicine, um, you know, referring to sort of some of the jurisdictions in the book, are there particular sort of um, barriers or tensions that come up perhaps culturally or otherwise in ADs in the Asian context, would you say? So,
2: I think there's a few initial observations to make about that question, Jade. A lot to say, really, about some of the mismatches or the distinctions between different jurisdictions and what we might call a sort of basic idea of the AD model. Um, yeah. So I think at the core, there is a kind of shared idea of an advanced directive that you know, in advance, people will control the kind of ways in which decisions get made in the future. Now, I think it's fair to say that that idea of the person retaining full control over the decision isn't isn't itself naturally aligned with many sociocultural contexts. And this is not just true of the Asian context, I think there is a, a whole wide range of reasons for thinking that people may, for example, want other people to be involved in deciding for them, or that they might just happily delegate or not make that choice in advance of the decision being made. So you know, there are there are different approaches to healthcare decision making more generally, um, and particularly in relationship to advanced decision making, but also in relation to some surrogate or substitute decision making, that um are alternatives in some senses to the basic idea. And I think it's fair to say there's alternative models may hit home uh, more um, more centrally in the ways in which we think about the Asian context. So, for example, you know, there is a a sort of expectation here uh, in this part of the world that the decision is not simply the patients alone. And so even if we allow an advanced directive model to be put in place, it's not just about the preservation of that patient's rights. There are other people invested in that decision and who are, would otherwise be typically expected to play a role in the decision making process. So one level that could undermine the entire model, it could say, look, we shouldn't be allowing the patient to make this decision and to have it respected. We should be expecting others, for example, family members to be making that decision. So at one level, it conflicts with the entire model, but at another lower level, I think we can see configurations in the ways in which we think about advanced directives in the Asian context, that just tinker with that basic model to allow modifications to it, to to capture perhaps alternative strategies or, or reconfigurations, that allow other voices or other people to play a role in how the, let's say, the AD is implemented, even if a basic idea of it is in place. So the kind of multiple different ways in which I think we can see tensions between the models and the local practices and expectations, particularly socio-cultural expectations, and then what that means for the introduction and implementation for the model in, in context.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I guess the sort of obvious question um, that might be in sort of listeners' minds is then if this isn't a decision, and again, this comes, I guess, from the sort of liberal Western rights concept of rights of the individual, but if this isn't just solely an individual's decision, um, are there any dangers in having a model of advanced directives?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, just just to follow on, I think I think mm. there are there are there are risks and dangers. Um, I think one is that you know the, the value of the value of respecting the person's autonomy or the protection of rights, which is the kind of cornerstone in ethical and legal terms in the AD model just doesn't get implemented correctly so we we say look we're going to implement this model we're going to do justice to the person's autonomy respect their autonomous wishes but we end up implementing something that doesn't do justice to that so that's an obvious risk i think that we we put forward a value and don't and aren't true to it in its implementation or other values get smuggled in in how the model is configured there is also of course another kind of tension, I guess, between different worldviews and and how we may even think about you know the idea of responsibilities here. So one of the one of the important features, I think, of some of the Asian jurisdictions that we focus on is the strong religious heritage that they have, and that impacts not just the kind of values that might uh, conflict with the model of an ad but the entire legal and regulatory frameworks that are put in place to introduce and govern medical decision making of this kind itself might be at odds with that framework so you know how we even govern and regulate is, is different in that way and so yeah, we have to sort kind of tailor the, the dangers in trying to, I guess, introduce a model on the basis of a regulatory framework that doesn't match up with the kind of governance models and systems in place in these kinds of, kinds of jurisdictions.
1: Yeah. Um, and that's really interesting. So thinking about these sort of different models, would you suggest... I think what I can gather is there is no uniform model and one there's no uniform model especially that would be appropriate for every jurisdiction. I think that's a key takeaway from the book. This really uh broad diverse um comparison of all these Asian jurisdictions. But would you say is there a sort of best practice model or are there sort of some key elements of an advanced directive model that you would recommend? be considered implemented in a sort of new, if there was to be a new model?
0: Uh, so um, I'll, I'll try to take this mm-hmm. one. So I, I don't think that um, after having gone through all of the, the different jurisdictions in the book that we are really able to say um, that there is any particular best uh, practice model um, in terms of the substance of what the um, regulatory framework should look like. But I think, I mean, this may be jumping ahead um, of ourselves a little bit, but in um, in our conclusion, we um, sort of introduced this concept of generative accommodation and um, the idea of how, I mean, it's been um, kind of underlying a lot of, I think, what Mikey has been talking about just now, sort of in terms of how um, different um, jurisdictions have kind of taken some of these um, ideas and sort of adapted them to their local uh, sociocultural situation and the, the particularities of their um, uh, jurisdiction. And um, in, in terms of the best practice point, uh, the point that I'm trying to make here is that we, we uh, what we've noticed from um, going through these jurisdictions with this particular perspective or this particular lens is that um, for jurisdictions that have engaged in a sort of a a high, I'm not sure if higher is the the correct word, but sort of a a level of generative accommodation, which involves more consideration and more thought into how ADs might be brought into their local cultural or uh, religious or sociocultural context in a way that um, can really adapt to their situation. Um, Those are the jurisdictions that tend to have uh, frameworks or um, uh, regimes in place that can better reflect Um, uh, what they want the AD to achieve in their jurisdiction. So if they don't do this, the problem is that they have the same name, but it doesn't actually get Um, implemented in practice. Uh, And so it's just sort of there either as a way to uh, comply with certain uh, international obligations on the face of it, um, or to uh, to create a lot of conflicts in the way that it's actually implemented on the ground and not really achieve what the original intention was. So um, I think in terms of best practice, I think that's probably the the closest that we can come to in terms of providing, you know, some sort of um, blueprint or model for that.
2: Yeah, just if, if I may just add to that, Jade. I think we, when we set out to to prepare the book and we thought about what we wanted to to cover in it. I think both Daisy and I were quite clear that we we didn't want to set out with the idea of uniformalizing a particular model of how AD should go. I think we saw our AIMS as much more sociological in some senses. So we wanted to you know, excavate how, in particular sociocultural and regulatory environments, a particular kind of approach was adopted, why that was adopted how it took shape challenges in that process and so what we really produce is a sort of patchwork of insights really about the multiple modes of ad regulation practice and 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 try to explain some of those differences throughout the book but having said that i mean there are some comments i think made by our various authors that really point towards yeah, you know, a direction of travel that they would endorse, and, and uh, in light of some of the challenges they observe, and I think one of those important distinctions that we we, we map out is a distinction between a top-down and a bottom-up approach to instigating change in, a, in an AD regime. There are some some uh, jurisdictions where you know laws come in and they're put into practice. There are other jurisdictions where all the work is done by professionals on the ground in medical environments, and then. Regulators kind of respond to that changing practice, um, and I think there is a sense in which the development of a framework where there is a, a regulatory degree of involvement, there, there is a, a harmonization at the higher levels around practices on the ground seems like something that people want to move towards, but I don't think we'd adv- advocate for one single harmonized model across the entirety of the the Asian context that we've looked at, I think there'll be multiple types of top down regulatory approach that would be um, essentially justifiable in context.
1: Maybe then this is a good time to talk about um, the different sort of methods of regulation that comes out through the comparison of the chapters. So the book's divided into three parts. There's the well-regulated jurisdictions, the semi-regulated jurisdictions, and those that are unregulated. And I think this relates somewhat to what you just talked about, Michael, in terms of there being, you know, some jurisdictions with the regulation that start from top down, and then some where the work is being done from the bottom up. Um, and then the regulation is sort of perhaps stepping in a bit later. So perhaps can you provide some examples and some explanation about these differences um, in the form that regulation takes with reference to some of the specific jurisdictions? Uh,
0: Yeah, sure. Um, So I I can um, take this question. So essentially, um, just by way of... um, sort of a definition for the way that we've organized these jurisdictions. I think it's important to make it clear upfront that because we use the word well-regulated okay. um, and this term well can come with normative um, implications. So just to make it clear that this category um, is defined by jurisdictions with a clear set of legal rules that are on or encompassing AD. So the fact that we use the word well um, just refers um, to the fact that there's comparatively formal regulation rather than any sort of normative assessment about the quality of this kind of legislation. And in fact, you'll see from a lot of the um, commentary on these regulatory frameworks that actually they're not particularly um, uh, um, designed in a way that that really works. Um, so uh, examples of these um, jurisdictions would include Israel, Singapore, South Korea, Taiwan, and Thailand, and India. We've included Um, India, even though it doesn't have a legislative um, framework, uh, it has very detailed judicial guidelines, um, but uh, the first five jurisdictions have um, sort of uh, comprehensive legislative frameworks that actually address um, ADs themselves and so um, generally you know there might be one or more regimes that could um that regulate ads in these jurisdictions so for example um you know in Israel uh, in Singapore it's sort of a mix so there is um, an advanced medical Direc- directives act but there also is a concurrent sort of jurisdiction um, under the mental uh, or, or in a in sort of in a more general sense of um ads that are not uh, executed in the form that the 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 legislation requires and nonetheless are binding under common law um and then you know in taiwan there's sort of two parallel regimes um that apply because you know there was an older form of the legislation the hospital palliative hospice palliative care act and then the newer one right to patient autonomy act which um uh uh, Patient Right to Autonomy Act, um, which uh, was legislated, you know, about two decades later. But because it doesn't completely um, overtake the previous one, there are situations in which, um, for terminal uh, patients with terminal illness, for example, the two legislative um, regimes could still apply in parallel. So there's some uh, confusion about how that would work. But um, so that's generally speaking, the way that these jurisdictions have been uh, are, are being uh, regulated. And then we have the semi-regulated uh, uh, jurisdictions, which cover um, jurisdictions with other forms of regulation. So this includes via official regulatory documents and practical guidelines, or other forms of guidance from um, professional societies. So this includes um, Hong Kong, Iran, Malaysia, the Philippines, and Turkey. Um, and just to, to make a comment here, that you know some of the. Uh, bottom-up jurisdictions that we've uh, kind of seen include, for example, the Philippines, where um, there actually isn't any kind of regulatory framework for ADs uh, at the top level, because because of, well, the, the authors speculate that this, because, for example, of the very um, uh, their sort of religious commitment, um, uh, which requires uh, lives to be, you know, saved at all costs, and, um, and also um, their sort of cultural attitudes towards disease causation, and sort of this idea of Bahala Na and what, what will be, will be. Um, but um, on the ground, we see very interestingly, um, across the different hospitals, they all, uh, many of them have very detailed guidelines on what to do, forms of ADs, what to do. Um, they have good practice guidelines, you know, how clearly should you we explain this to the family and the patient, and you know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's a very interesting example of how the like um, ads have been regulated from the bottom up out of necessity. Um, at, even though you know at the top level there isn't any such regulation, um, and then um, Turkey is another example, which is it, it's sort of a budding jurisdiction because um, this um, guidance and. Professional guidelines is very uh, the the emergence of these guidelines is very recent, only in the past couple of years. Even though um, Turkey has been um, a signatory to the Oviedo Convention for a, a you know a lengthy period of time, and there's been a lot of academic uh, commentary about how it still hasn't complied with its obligations under the Oviedo Convention to legislate on ADs. And so um, these uh, practice guidelines from professional societies also demonstrates that there is this need on the ground that needs to be addressed and is being slowly addressed by professional societies, even though it isn't being addressed at the top level yet. Um, And then finally we have, um, oh, and and one point, uh, final point about that is about Hong Kong, um, which, was a previously or is still a semi-regulated jurisdiction as of now, but um, there is a process to move um, legislation through the Legislative Council very soon. So it may become a uh, well-regulated jurisdiction in the near future. And so the last category is non-regulated, which covers jurisdictions where There might be, you know, sort of at best, these sort of broad principles that are contained in legislation or guidelines around healthcare that do stress the importance of patient preferences, but there aren't really any specific regulations or guidelines um, which connect to AD specifically. And this um, covers the jurisdictions of China, Japan, Macau, Pakistan, and Saudi Arabia. So that's sort of how we um, organize all the jurisdictions in the book.
1: Yeah, and it was really interesting to read these sort of really quite... um diverse comparisons Um, and it was surprising at you know i've come to it am not not knowing anything about advanced directives and there's sort of some of the legal systems that you would anticipate would have a more regulated uh, sort of framework for example japan were did fall into the um non-regulated jurisdiction so i found that really interesting to read those comparisons Um, i want to pick up on something you said a moment ago daisy about this um, concept of gener- generative accommodation because this was sort of how you brought the book together um, and yeah, tied all the chapters together. I'm wondering if you can explain a little bit more about what this concept means.
2: i I say that one, day. Yeah, oh, sorry. So, <laughs> so that's okay, don't worry. I mean, we we both have a different, slightly different way of expressing yeah. the same point. So maybe, Daisy, add, add to my comments if you want to add, if I think I'm missing. So yeah, so the generative accommodation idea, I think is for, for Daisy and I, one of the most important elements of the contribution in a way it was almost a sort of side effect of the kind of broader analysis that we did I think what we think the concept is really about is a way in which we could even think about global bioethics more generally or, or the kind of globalization of medical law and ethics perhaps more broadly and and the idea is that you know Strikingly, I think, what we noticed in in all of these jurisdictions was it wasn't really an indigenous version of ADs. What we see, whether it's bottom-up or top-down in terms of their development, and of course all these jurisdictions are moving all the time, as Daisy says, it's an outside influence, essentially, that's given rise to these changes and these developments. It's not there's not a kind of localized or indigenous version of these things which is grown grown up from the bottom so that's what the idea of accommodation does we think you know there is a there is essentially an international consensus in bioethics in medical law etc which says yes the ad's is an established good practice idea based upon a universal value of respecting the person's autonomy, it protects people's rights, it should be part of the discourses and the practices and the regulations of countries around the world. And I think what we are seeing is either practitioners in these jurisdictions responding to that and building local approaches in their own hospitals or elsewhere, or we're seeing regulators or advocacy groups putting pressure on each other or on on, on governments to introduce laws that provide those safeguards, and that happens for various kinds of reasons. It could just be nothing more that that people feel they need to be part of this international community of like-minded medical practitioners, and so they kind of try to harmonise and and respond accordingly. But what's going on is an accommodation, essentially, then, of this overarching value of respecting autonomy and the commitment to introducing, in some capacity, a model of this kind. Now. That's not all there is to it, I don't think, because I think what we also see, and this, is, this, this captures and explains the diversity of approach and the very localized and nuanced approaches that we see in diverse practices, in the ways that the family takes a place, in, in the implementation of ADs, the way that religion and other ethical values get configured together, is that we see what we... So the, the idea of the generative component of accommodation is that these... These accommodating ideas or strategies all give rise to new forms of that practice, and so there really isn't a single story of the AD in Asia. There isn't a single narrative to, to describe its particular configuration. There is multiple generative versions of, of ADs that come about, come about, comes about rather through the ways in which these jurisdictions try to accommodate um international consensus or global value commitments or you know just be part of a kind of common good practice model of care essentially um and so for us that that account is not just important to explain what might be going on in relationship to ADs in Asia it could potentially be a concept that we want to think about in other kinds of um I guess uh, disputed medical situations AI gene editing, ways in which, you know, there could be similar pressures that parts of the world are feeling to to align themselves with international consensus. And in so doing, they produce their own unique forms of regulation, practice, guideline, etc. So we'd like to kind of expand this on, I suppose, to think about this concept to other kinds of problems in ethics and law uh, locally in the same way.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. It sounds like it does have potentially universal application this concept of generative accommodation um so that is a key takeaway even if someone is not you know focused on advanced directives I think that uh, the concept of generative accommodation alone is worth you know checking out your book for um notwithstanding there is no sort of you sort of said consensus um there are Uh, and those sort of uniform there are sort of some key comparisons that you make and you know you draw out some of the patterns in the observations across the jurisdictions Um, for example you you sort of pick up on some themes of conservative features for example also lack of awareness understanding or utilisation something that you've mentioned already is the socio-cultural and religious influences and the variations in specificity of regulation perhaps you can talk more about some of these themes um as they sort of um pick up on this concept of generative accommodation and you know in the differences and the comparisons that you make um between the jurisdictions. Uh thanks Jim
0: so essentially um we we've sort of um looked at the, the findings and trends. Um, so, so just in terms of the findings and trends that you've mentioned, for example, we, we did see, you know, despite the, the many differences, there were some um, similarities that we observed. Uh, as you mentioned, the conservative approach, um, there are lots of jurisdictions that sort of limit um, ADs to very uh, specific and very um, difficult to demonstrate uh, situations that are uh, difficult to fully uh, demonstrate in time for the AD to have any meaning. Um, so first, you know, the many jurisdictions limit um, pa- um, ADs to patients with terminal illness. Um, and in some jurisdictions like Singapore, South Korea, India, these are further limited to instances of determined medical uh, futility, which some of the authors argue, uh, makes there not much uh, deliberative value to um, the, the existence of the AD at all. Um, and also, you know, they uh, a lot of extensive procedures are usually required prior to the implementation of ADs with very little regard for emergency situations. You know, Especially the case in India um, and in Singapore, where you know a lot of uh, there needs to be a lot of consensus among different medical experts in order for an AD to be, uh, in order for the person to be determined to have a terminal illness, and then to determine the the um, whether the AD should be um, implemented. And so by the time all of that is done, there's a question as to the the effectiveness of having the AD in the first place. Um, and generally, there there aren't many duties to implement or um, punishment. Um, if the doctor doesn't implement the AD, usually it's just, um, you know, uh, uh, exemptions of liabilities if they do implement, but, you know, there's not not particular, there's no particular encouragement for them to um, uh, implement. And, um, and then, you know, obviously, another big trend was, you know, general lack of awareness and understanding. And I believe that this is the case, you know, even in a lot of the um, other, you know, in the jurisdictions in um, the, in, in the West where, you <clears throat> um, ADs have been deliberated for a lengthy period of time, I think usually awareness tends to be uh, low among the the public, even for uh, those jurisdictions. And, um, you know, obviously there are lots of different um, variations in the uh, the regulation and and, and whatnot. Um, But in terms of the, um, I'm not sure if this addresses your question, but in terms of the actual um, uh, sort of um, axes along which we might uh, consider the extent to which jurisdictions are generative, we have sort of looked at this as being um, on, on uh, something of a spectrum. So um, a jurisdiction might be more generative or less generative. And I think as Mikey was saying, we, we are thinking more about this and uh, the different axes along which we can describe um, something being more or less generative or describing it in a different um, <clears throat> kind of way instead of just being more or less uh, a particular thing. But in, in the book, what we, uh, what we look at are the ways in which Um, jurisdictions uh, could be more or less generative. And as I mentioned, under the the question we were talking about, about um, best practice, there are uh, jurisdictions that tend to be more generative or to put more thought into how they um, might uh, incorporate these uh, principles or these ideas best into their Uh, cultural uh, situation. So for example, um, Taiwan would be an example of a jurisdiction with a more generative approach. I mentioned they had two pieces of uh, legislation and the newer one. Uh, The Patient Right to Autonomy Act um, contains these uh, provisions that really sort of um, deal with the local cultural emphasis on the role of the family. And um, they do this in a way that not just um, affirms that this uh, emphasis on the role of the family exists but also by placing constraints on the role so they both affirm and they uh, place constraints um so on the one hand a family member is required by law to be present at an individ- individual's advanced care planning process so in in, in taiwan they need uh, the, the ad is a part of the advanced care planning process um and a family member needs to be present uh, during this uh, process. And on the other, um, there is a provision that also forbids family members from preventing a doctor from acting on the patient's treatment decision. So there, uh, there is this, you know, we understand that the family is important, so they, they have to be there. And on the other hand, we're not going to let family members stop a doctor from acting on the patient's wishes. So we, we, we felt that this really demonstrated a lot of um, careful consideration and the adoption of these principles and concepts into the Taiwanese concept. Context um, in ways that really sort of retain their essence, but also align um, with local cultural values. Um, And then, um, you know, on the side of less generative approaches, um, you know, I mentioned Turkey before, but there's also the example of Thailand. So, um, Thailand is a very interesting example because the National Health Act is uh, it very, emphasizes very much the principle of respect for individual autonomy. And they make it clear that the right to make an advanced directive is solely to be reserved for the individual rather than the family. And so um, this is something that, you know, there's this very big emphasis on this idea of individual autonomy, which, um, as we've discussed previously, is not always the case or is not always how autonomy is understood in many of these um, Asian jurisdictions. So um, the, the problem, though, with this legislation is that they also have in their, um, this National Health Act, what um, is described as sort of an over flexibility in their rules for making um, an advanced directive. So, um, uh, for example, there, there are no uh, rules on any kind of formalities, there's no rules on whether The mental capacity needs to be assessed in a certain way, assessed by a certain person. Um, There's no rules uh, about how the AD should be stored and how the AD should be retrieved. Uh, Physicians don't actually know if the the patient comes with an AD, whether uh, the AD was written at a time when the person had capacity. So there are a number of different problems with um, being too flexible, um, which makes um, the, uh, the advanced directive not really work in practice. And so it, this suggests that these concepts haven't really been introduced in the, into the local context in a way that considers whether these ADs can be successfully um, implemented. And of course, um, in, Tha- um, in Thailand, family also has an important role But um, So they do have one um, feature that addresses this role, which is to, um, under the National Health Act, the the person is able to designate an individual who is often a family member to clarify their wishes that are contained in the A.D. So they can write down, okay, I want my sister, if they don't understand what I've written in my A.D., to clarify what I mean. Um, Not to make decisions for me, but just to clarify what I've written um, in the A.D., But apart from this, the Thai regime doesn't really do anything uh, more to reconcile this very individually focused AD with the cultural emphasis on family. So then what happens is um, uh, if the family members disagree, then the doctors uh, who who aren't really sure about the AD in the first place will often not comply with the patient's AD because the family members are there disagreeing and also because, you know, there are very little um, uh, rules or punishment, you know, uh, involved for not implementing the AD and so much uncertainty surrounding the validity of the AD. So that would be an example uh, in our minds of uh, a, a, ver- a less generative, um, uh, a, 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 sorry, a jurisdiction that's less generative in its accommodation of this idea.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah it's super interesting. Um, And just sort of one of the other Key themes that come through is not just the a role of the family in the Asian context, but also the role of religion. So maybe you could just um, comment on that as well. Uh, should I? Uh, I sure, can...
2: Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. yeah.
1: So
0: um, in terms of um, the role of religion, what was interesting to us was there was a, you know, as we know, there's a range of different religious traditions that are represented in the book, which include Christianity, Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism and Jainism. And um, one of the <clears throat> very common features among many of these religions is the sanctity of life principle. So, um, for example, you know, and I mentioned the Philippines and their lack, uh, so their reluctance to pass um, uh, legislation on ADs may be related to the, you know, the utmost um, uh, importance of the principle of sanctity of life in, um, in terms of uh, Christianity as it's understood in um, uh, uh, the Philippines. Um, so so that would be, you know, one of the examples of a, a jurisdiction in which this principle applies in a certain way. But as we've noticed, the impact of this particular principle is not, um, it's not straightforward. So it's not the same Uh, as in all of these different jurisdictions. So I've just mentioned the Philippines where sanctity of life is the principle of utmost importance and has sort of precluded the development of um, AD uh, regulation. But on the other hand, there are jurisdictions where sanctity of life is the principle of utmost importance, but where um, the development of ADs has been allowed to occur. So, this would an example of this would be Israel. But um, because of this, um, because of this principle, this has um, the principle has largely restricted the scope of ADs or what's permitted. Um, and um, in Israel, for example, it's been observed that there's a tension between you know these overarching. Uh, religious principles that guide that jurisdiction and their legislation um, and then also the needs of practice by doctors on the ground. So the doctors on the ground um, and then the doctors and the patients and the families tend to be more secular um, than this sort of, uh, I mean, there's a bit of political background in the Israel context and this ultra-Orthodox um, uh, legislation that's been passed, um, which doesn't really reflect sort of what uh, what are the needs on the ground. So that's also a, a complication, but it's just interesting in which uh, the, the ways in which, you know, one principle can um, impact the jurisdictions and the development of ADs in um, different ways. And um, in jurisdictions where sanctity of life is only one of several key principles, the interaction of these principles, um, as well as how they have been interpreted, also have a significant impact on what's allowed in terms of AD. So in a lot of the um, jurisdictions where they look to Islamic principles, Um, you know, sanctity of life is important, but there are also other principles. Um, So, you know, there's a very interesting analysis in the Iran um, chapter where they talk about, you know, the different stages of um, dying. And so, you know, the idea is that, you know, when they are in the final stage of dying, it, isn't actually a problem to allow them to die at that stage, because that's already been preordained, and that's already the stage that they've entered. So it's different from, you know, not saving someone who's in the prime of their life who, you know, needs this emergency treatment to continue living, and someone who's at the, you know, very terminal stage of their life um, and so, you know, the same um, uh, the same principle might be understood in a different jurisdiction, such as Pakistan, for example, to, to preclude the development of ADs in that sense. So um, it's been very interesting for us to see how the role of religion impacts all of these jurisdictions differently, even where they may say, share very similar um, religious principles or very similar interpretations of them.
1: Yeah, that was super fascinating, I found, reading the book, which just sort of, way these different principles do impact the evolution and regulation of advanced directives even if the principles you know are in name or sort of in substance largely similar or the same it was really really fascinating really rich um I and I would you know overall I, I would comment this was a really sort of rich book and I feel like we've only only just sort of skimmed the surface you know it is really broad but we've had a chance to talk about some of the examples and it is such a um really such a great book so I would recommend everyone um, order a copy in your library and um ha- have a look at this book um, now Daisy and Michael I've taken up a lot of your time um, but just before you go our famous new books network last question is what are you working on now
2: Well, okay, let me start. I'm glad to say we're still working together. So we we have lots of future research plans. you know, we've mentioned this concept of generative accommodation, we introduced it in the book, but we think there's a lot more to say about that, so we do have plans to really develop those ideas and think about how Asian bioethics as a concept might reflect some of those generative accommodations in other parts of its um, remit. Um, And I think also it's worth pointing out that we're writing something on the family and the family's role in a, in medical decision-making and advanced activities that have really come out of being stimulated by the book. So... I think both Daisy and I would observe that there's there's quite a limited analysis given to the kind of way in which the family is positioned and the justifications that are offered for the family's role in Asian medical decision-making in this part of the world. So I think one thing the book has thrown up is a much more nuanced and multiple account of the way in which the family takes shape in decision-making processes. And I think we want to... I guess give a more subtle and more nuanced account of the multiple roles that the family can take and the multiple justifications that underpin those roles. Typically, we might see the family as being opposed to the patient in some regards, and we don't think that's the case. We think it's a much more subtle story than that. And we also don't think that the standard account of the family is being justified by recourse to something like paternalism on the one hand, or on the other hand, a refined relational account of autonomy is quite correct either. So we're, we're, we're trying to pick up, I guess, and map out in the Asian decision-making context how the family takes shape, how that's not singular in in nature, and how multiple ethical justifications might underpin those roles. Um, I think the challenge is some of the preconceptions people have in the West versus East debate about family versus patient, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that's one other thing we're working on together. Well,
1: I'll definitely uh, yes. check that out. And Daisy, sorry.
0: Oh no, yeah, I was just going to um uh, add on to what Mikey was talking about. So, um as Mikey's mentioned there are these two separate projects that we've been um, sort of talking about. And um, just to add to the the family uh, project, I think this was, um, you know, the, the book really brought up, you know, this uh, complexity and the nuance in the role of the family. And, you know, we we sort of talked about it a little bit in the conclusion, but we, uh, I don't think we had um, enough of a chance to sort of fully explore the different um, types of roles and the, the underlying justifications. And just to add to the justification, so first of all, you know, we, we um, spend some time mapping out the different roles, which I think is important because, uh, and we we did have to go back and forth on this mapping because there are so many, it's easy to sort of mix uh, the, the the role itself with the justification. And um, so it, it's very, it was very clear, uh, it, it needed to be very clear in our minds, you know, which were the, were the roles we were talking about. And in terms of justifications, this was, there was also a lot of back and forth and very, uh, what I felt was very interesting discussion on sort of, you know, what what is the basis for that type of justification? Is it sort of like a family-centric uh, justification or is it an individual-centric um, justification? education. and you know, you might think that just because the family is involved, it should be family-centric, but that's not the case. And a lot of the family, a lot of the roles that the family plays and a lot of the ethical rationales it plays um, has, uh, you know, is individ- individual-centric in, in in nature. But then they're also, you know, in, in justifications that depend on uh, different um, sort of interests. So, you know, autonomy interests, welfare interests, and they don't fall so neatly, you know, into the way, into ways that you might imagine. So, for example, the family must be be welfare, it must be paternalistic. That hasn't been um the case. So I, I think that this project is uh something that will help the uh help sort of or will will we'll will will um, we'll, we'll be able to um uh, uh think more about you know the complexities and all of this and um, add to the the complexities um that are currently in the literature which uh, as Mikey said aren't very many so currently it's very di- dichotomous it's it's described in a very singular manner and so um I think um, this project will be able to to hopefully add um to that. Um, And just to add uh, uh, that this book is open access, so um, I do order a copy for your libraries, but yes, um, (laughs) don't actually need to pay to read it, which is great.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, I definitely, yes, get your hands on a copy. um, And I'll really look forward to seeing what comes out of your next projects together, because this has been really fascinating. Um, So once again, I'm Jane Richards. I've been speaking with Daisy Chung and Michael Dunn, and they're the editors of Advanced Directives Across Asia, a comparative socio-legal analysis published by Cambridge University Press in 2023. Daisy and Michael, thank you so much for your time.
2: Thank Thank you you very much, Jane.